Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your hands. Let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work Ram Zone. I hope you're never the same. Super great big thanks and Merry Christmas goes out to Jose Cruz. He'll be engineering and producing the show today, and he won't be taking your calls because this is a special pre-recorded edition of the I Work For Him radio program as we're all going to be sharing our time with our families today on Christmas. Martha and I wanted to share with you some stories of great faith as you listen to us in the background of those celebrations with time with family. These are stories to share with your family, stories to inspire and remind you of what the celebration of Christmas is all about. So gather your loved ones around you and sit back and enjoy the stories that Martha and I will read to you. We start off today with a verse from Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. And as we start off with the book written by Chuck Swindoll called Celebrate Jesus, the Christmas story through the eyes of an angel named Gabriel. I know, and I know more than any mortal could, for I stand in the very presence of God and announce his decrees to the people on earth. Yet despite the timeless heavenly perspective I enjoy as one of the heavenly messengers, one particular mystery is beyond my ability to understand. God's persistent, unrelenting love for people. It began before time and it will never end. 
My specific role was to carry announcements concerning the Messiah, which I revealed to God's servant, Daniel. He lived more than 500 years before the Messiah was to be born during the reign of Belshazzar of Babylon. I had to do battle and overcome the forces of evil to reach the prophet, and when I arrived, I interpreted the visions he had received. I've described the political events that would signal the coming of the Messiah, along with a detailed timetable, so that no one could overlook his arrival. As instructed, Daniel kept his prophecy from the general public at the time, but recorded every detail in a scroll for future generations. He also shared his revelation with the king's astrologers and magicians, even going so far as to calculate the future position of the constellations when the Messiah was to be born. Long after he was dead, long after the people of Judah had returned from exile, he anticipated and predicted the skies would signal the arrival of the king of the Jews. World events unfolded exactly as they've been revealed to Daniel. The Babylonians gave way to the Persians, who were in turn conquered by the Greeks. Then the Romans became the rulers of Judea. The decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem established the time in which the people of Israel could expect to receive their king. And as the heavenly clock wound down, I thought certainly after all that I had announced, the signs, the times, the most explicit details recorded by Daniel, certainly the people of Judah would be watching and waiting. Certainly they would have no trouble recognizing their need for a savior. Certainly they would anticipate and celebrate the arrival of their deliverer. Everything had been revealed. All the people of Israel had to do was to watch the calendar, travel to Bethlehem as the prophet Micah later announced and welcome him. But I am not omniscient. I could not see the future as God does. As the time approached, his covenant people didn't appear ready, which confused me greatly. But as always, he had a plan. Knowing that Israel would be distracted or disinterested, he promised a forerunner through his prophet Malachi. As the time for the Messiah ripened, he sent me on a mission. I was now to announce the birth of the forerunner to the Christ, to a priest in Jerusalem. When I appeared to Zacharias, the father of the boy, I was excited beyond words. The plan announced more than 500 years earlier what was about the plan announced more than 500 years earlier was about to commence. I told the old man that he and his aging wife would give birth to John, the forerunner before the Christ, and that he would serve God in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But to my utter dismay, he resisted my message. He failed to believe me. Did every Jew think that Israel was like an aged woman too old to bear new life? Did they not understand that God can do anything? While I looked with sorrow on Zacharias for his failing hope, I admit that I bristled at his lack of faith. And by God's instruction, I struck him deaf and mute for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He would be a living symbol of Israel's failure. As a priestly nation to the world, it was their duty to proclaim God's word and become an example of belief. I returned to the throne room of the heavenly, of heaven entirely dejected and confided in a fellow angel. I know God's plan never fails, but I fear this plan will not go as smoothly as I had anticipated. The next phase worried me even more. God explained that the Messiah must be born of a virgin. Why a virgin, I asked, because he is to be my son, he replied. This took me by surprise, and I began to see that his plan involved far more than delivering Israel from the oppression of Rome, more than giving them political power and economic prosperity, more than merely fulfilling the promise of the land to Abraham. I should have known the character of God better. Having served him as long as I had, his promises always exceeded expectations. 
He continued, I announced my plans soon after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. But don't fault yourself for failing to notice. Even Moses, who recorded my words, did not realize their full meaning. If you recall, I pronounced a series of curses as a consequence of disobedience. I cursed the woman to suffer anguish during childbirth. I cursed the man to toil for his sustenance. I cursed their intimacy to endure strife. I cursed the ground to produce weeds and thorns along with crops. But do you remember the first curse I pronounced? Yes, I replied. You cursed the serpent. Serpent who deceived them to crawl upon the ground and that one day the heel of her seed would crush his head. The Lord nodded in his approval. But yes, you have omitted a part. Do you mean that, there, that the serpent would bruise the heel of her seed? Indeed, I promise that the offspring of the woman would destroy evil forever, but not without great personal cost. You're listening to a special Christmas edition of I Work For Him with stories that inspire you to great faith and remind you why we celebrate Christmas. Back to the story of the Celebrate Jesus, written by Chuck Swindoll, the Christmas story through the eyes of an angel named Gabriel. Indeed, I promise that the offspring of the woman would destroy evil forever, but not without great personal cost. You see, my plan has always been to save humankind from the affliction of evil. But Lord, I asked, can you not rid the world of evil simply by destroying Satan and all of his angels? No, Unfortunately, when the first man chose to dis disobey, he became infected with the disease of evil, and he passed it on to the next generation, and they to the next, and so that all humankind is inseparably bound to evil. To destroy all evil, I would have to destroy the people I have made, the people I love so very, very much. As I thought about the problem of sin and evil, I realized the difficulty. Transgression, transgression of God's laws, decrees that reflect his very character, must carry a penalty or they're meaningless. To, to forgive the sin without penalty would require God to deny his very character, yet to eradicate sin would destroy the sinner. Unable to resolve the dilemma, I asked, how will you destroy sin and preserve the people? The Lord glowed with pleasure. At the opportunity to reveal the next detail of his plan, I will provide a substitute, someone to pay the penalty of sin on their behalf. But who, I protested, how can someone pay for the sins of another if he dies paying for his own? A very astute question, he answered. The substitute must not have any sin of his own. I was even more perplexed. But Lord, the substitute would have to be human in order to represent humanity. Yet all of humanity has been infected with evil. Furthermore, the substitute would have to be superhuman in order to pay the penalty for all people, to die a death that would cover not just one sinner's penalty, but that of a whole multitude. What substitute can possibly suffice? After a short silence, God said, God. I, so, I stood dumbfounded. It didn't seem possible, and as if it were, it didn't seem fair. Indeed, it wasn't. This was grace, so characteristic of him, yet utterly beyond my ability to comprehend. He continued, I will send my eternal son to be the Messiah. He will be the substitute. The Messiah will not be the son of a sinful earthly father, but my son, born of a virgin to preserve his sinlessness. The Messiah will be, a man, will be man. The Messiah will be God. Being the God-man, he will represent humankind, yet he will have no sin. Furthermore, after he dies on behalf of all humankind, he will conquer death by rising from the grave." I could not speak. The perfection of his plan, so ingenious, so simple, so intricate, left me more amazed than seeing him create the universe with a mere word. Do you see now, he asked, the first curse I pronounced in the garden. 
The curse in which the woman's offspring would suffer the sting of evil was a curse upon the Almighty. The father will suffer the loss of his son, who will suffer an excruciating death, matched only by his abandonment to suffering by the Spirit. At this I wept. The immense love of God was more than I could fathom. The selfless grace of God was beyond my comprehension. And for what? Creatures who who neither desired him nor sought him, who not only failed to believe but refused to believe, this will always remain a mystery to me. As I considered how he would implement his plan, how the Messiah would be born of a virgin, I noted that it would be incredible, be an incredible hardship on the chosen couple. It would call for unqualified obedience, complete submission. I humbly asked, can any such people be found in all of Judea or Galilee? Yes, he said. In fact, this is your next task. You are to go to a devout young woman, a virgin, who is betrothed to a spiritually sensitive young man. I have prepared them since childhood for this. They have been reared by godly parents and are therefore faithful students of my word who earnestly desire to be obedient. The young woman is Mary. Go to her. Tell her that she will be the mother of the Messiah. What about the young man, I asked. Not now. I have much to teach him first. I will use this ordeal to prepare Joseph for the very difficult task of rearing the Son of God. I pitied the man for he what he was about to endure. Is there no easier way, I asked? You already know the answer to that. Don't worry. I have a man waiting for him in Jerusalem. When Joseph's heart is soft, when he is ready to hear and accept my will, my servant Simeon will be there to guide him. Then he will be able to receive the announcement from you. Now go. I delighted to tell the young woman. Naturally, she was confused at first, but she never hesitated to obey. And while she, was, while she fully understood the hardship it would bring, she saw it was the most wonderful honor any woman could receive. Her attitude and obedience qualified her for angelic service, but it was better than she was credited for, but it was better that she was cre- created for this purpose. To help Mary endure the loneliness of misunderstanding until Joseph was ready, the Lord arranged for her to visit Elizabeth whose heart he had prepared. In the meantime, I waited for the Lord's signal before appearing to Joseph in a dream. I knew he would be the greater challenge. It was a, it was a particular relief to me when I could assure him that Mary had not betrayed his love. And he, like Mary, never hesitated to obey the Lord God, despite the lifetime of difficulties it was sure to bring. As the time approached for Mary to deliver the Christ, heaven could barely contain the excitement, so I was distressed by the response of the people of earth. Elizabeth's unusual pregnancy and Zachariah's experience in the temple caused a sensation in the Judean hill country. Yet very few anticipated the Messiah. The teachers of the scripture in the temple had certainly seen the prophecies of Isaiah, Daniel, Micah, and Malachi. Yet no one truly sought the Christ. Bad enough that he would be delivered in a stable and cradled in a feeding trough. But the king of all creation was about to be born and no one knew. This was a mystery that he would lean that would lead me to lean and to learn another lesson about God's plan. And it began with my next mission. I was to lead a contingent of several thousand angels to announce the Savior's birth to, of all people, shepherds. The only class of people considered lower than the shepherds were thieves. Even Gentiles were afforded more respect. Again, I found myself baffled by God's logic. Were the plan mine, I would have roused the sleeping world by trumpeting the birth of the Messiah in the temple and in the royal courts. I would have engaged the important people in welcoming the king, the new king to the earth. 
I would have caused a supernatural dazzling, dazzling cosmic display to coincide with his birth so that everyone would know that God had come from the heavens to earth in the form of human flesh, but not God. He said, I'll announce the birth of the Savior only to those who care to know it, only to those looking for a Savior. Those who want a king to lead them into battle or a leader to make them rich will not know what to do with my anointed one. If the rich and the learned and the powerful care to find him, they will have no trouble. I've made the time and place of his birth known to all mankind for many centuries. So I found a small band of shepherds tending sheep in the fields within an hour's walk of Bethlehem. Once the Savior was born, I approached them quietly so as not to startle them too much. And then once I had their attention, I split the veil between earth and heaven to reveal a host of angels praising God. And those Bedouins responded exactly as I had hoped. They leapt to their feet and joined the praise of heaven, then immediately set out to find the Christ in Bethlehem. As the Lord carried out his plan, I began to see an important truth. Not every heart is prepared to receive a Savior or to recognize him when he arrives. And this saddened me. In heaven, our entire existence revolves around the adoration of God, and every activity is a response to his perfect will. I cannot imagine living any other way. Humans pursue happiness and fulfillment apart from him. Some even think that communion with God will mean the end of personal satisfaction. Most are barely aware that sin has separated them from the source of their contentment and continue to live in vain pursuit of cheap substitutes. I suppose nothing has changed very much since Adam's tragic choice so long ago. I was briefly encouraged by the response of the shepherds, but I soon fell into a deep despondency. God noticed the sorrow on my face and asked me to share my heart with him. I don't understand, Lord. The greatest event of all human history has just taken place, an act of grace too wonderful for words, yet almost no one cared to notice. You know all things. You can see what I cannot. Please tell me, is there any hope for humankind? You have sent the Savior. Will any receive him? I felt the compassion of God envelop me as he answered, Gabriel, my faithful companion, my faithful champion, your concern for humanity reflects my own. Come, let me show you something that will surely warm your hearts as it does mine. Look, there in the temple, do you see someone familiar? Simeon, the old man you sent to instruct Joseph. He's there almost every day. I made him a promise years ago that he would not die before laying eyes on the Messiah. There are many more like him all over the world, though not all of them know it. They long to see the Savior, and they faithfully go to the respective temples looking for him. Soon they will see him. Soon they will hear. Will all of them respond like Simeon? Will they receive the Savior, I asked with eagerness? No, not nearly as many as you would wish, but many will, multitudes in fact, and not only in Judea and Galilee. Look, he directed my attention to a spot on the eastern side of the Arabian desert. There, a cloister of magi preserved the traditions of the Babylonian and Persian astrologers. And as they looked into the western sky high above the horizon, a new light triggered a memory. One of the magicians dug out an old manuscript manuscript, and rediscovered Daniel's calculations. And after comparing his charts to the sky, he searched the Hebrew scriptures for the significance of Daniel's map of the stars. You're listening to a special Christmas edition of I Work For Him with inspiring stories of great faith to remind you why we celebrate Christmas. We're reading and finishing up uh, the story by Chuck Swindoll, Celebrate Jesus, the Christmas story through the eyes of an angel, the angel Gabriel. 
One of the magicians dug up an old manuscript and rediscovered Daniel's calculations. And after comparing his charts to the sky, he searched the Hebrew scriptures for the significance of Daniel's map of the stars. He soon found his answer. A king, but not just any king, the king of the Jews, a king who would eventually rule the world. The Magi knew that a delegation must be sent to investigate, so they elected a number of representatives and assembled an expedition to Jerusalem. Where else would they expect to find a king than in the capital city? They traveled more than three months to see the new king, and when they found him, they did something extraordinary. They fell down on their faces and worshipped. Unfortunately, not everyone responded to the news of Christ so favorably. The Magi inadvertently stirred Herod's jealousy, which led to a hunt for the Christ child, not to worship him, but to destroy him. His ruthless search led to the mass murder of male infants throughout the region. But the Lord God sent me to warn Joseph. I instructed him to take his little family to Egypt for safety, where they would live for no less than three years. Then I was there to summon him home to Galilee after Herod had died. But just to be on the safe side, Joseph elected to settle in Nazareth instead of Cana. In the seclusion of the little forgotten town, he would ply his trade, teach Yeshua all that he knew about the law of the prophets and the writings, and look for the day when he could explain that he was adopted. As the boy grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men, I saw the drama that played out in Bethlehem repeated again and again. Most ignored him. Many rejected him. Some recognized the Savior, and like the Magi, fell down and worshipped. In time, I came to understand the grand truth behind God's plan. Those who want a Savior will find him, and if they see him as he is, they will worship. My great hope for the sake of humanity is that wise men, like you, will continue to seek him. Celebrate Jesus by Chuck Swindoll. Now it's time for our book highlight segment, and it's brought to you by MTL Magazine. Our friends at mtlmagazine.com have worked hard to put together an amazing magazine and website that help us grow in our faith as they highlight authors, artists, books, movies, and so much more. MTL represents more to life, and our friends at mtlmagazine.com believe that there is, there is a Christian product that will help you get more out of your life in Christ. Whether you're looking for resources about faith, family, relationships, money, health, the world, or everyday life, mtlmagazine.com is an excellent resource for me, and I know you will love it too. You'll find more to life at mtlmagazine.com. Our book highlight today is An Endless Christmas by Cynthia Rukti. And on the way to Christmas with his family, Micah asked Katie to marry him. She says no, but there is no getting out of Christmas now. The Binder family celebrates every Christmas as if it were its last. Too many people, too much snow, and too little room should be a recipe for disaster. But sometimes, too much is just enough, especially when it's Christmas. So please uh, check out this book and look for it on our Facebook for you to win a copy of this great Christmas novel with so many lessons. Our next story is entitled In Cameos, written by Cynthia Rukti. Bethlehem's Traveler's Inn, may I help you? This is the manager. Sorry, we're all booked up for this census-taking convention. Every room's taken. That's what I said. No room in the inn. Well, look, lady, you can try if you want to, but word has it there isn't room to be found anywhere in the city. Should have gotten your reservation in earlier. Yeah, 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 I understand. You know that Roman government thing. When they want something done, they wait until the last minute to tell us, and then they want it done yesterday. 
I sympathize with you, but look, there's nothing I can do. You might want to try Judah's used RV dealership out there by the Olive Grove. Well, well, whatever. I can't help you. Harried and hassled, a young man approaches the imposing figure behind the desk. Hey, boss, that couple in room 212, they're complaining again. They didn't get their complimentary chocolate mints when the maid finished cleaning their room. Housekeeping says that the mints are on back order, but 212 doesn't care. They're really upset. Uh, why don't you get down, go down to the kitchen and give them some hot honey cakes. See if that'll pacify them. Bethlehem's Traveler's in. How may I help you? Sorry, no vacancy, no room, no exceptions. Have a nice day. Hey, hey, you, mister, shut the door. Were you born in a barn? On second thought, why don't you just shut the door behind you as you leave? We're booked up. No rooms. I already got three families sleeping in the lobby. Hey, my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do about Yeah? Yeah, well, it's pretty obvious that your wife is going to have a baby. Where are you from? Nazareth? Well, I bet that was a rough trip. Hey, 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 is she okay? Look, you better get her out of here. I can't have a baby born in my lobby. There's enough confusion around here tonight. Hey, 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 tell her not tell her not to cry. I'm a new father myself. I'm not heartless. There's just nothing I could do. Ah, mister, come here, come here, come here, come here. I know it's not perfect, but you can bed down in the stable out back if you want. It's not much for looks, and it can get pretty chilly out there at night, but it's all I've got. Take it or leave it. Tell your wife, I hope everything turns out all right, and with the baby and all. What do you owe me? Oh, oh, that's on the house. Who knows? Maybe your kid will turn out to be somebody important someday, and I can tell people it spent its first night in my stable. Now that would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, just, just, just get out of here. I, I got paying customers to worry about. Yo, Abby, come here for a minute. Abby tucks her dust rag into the sash of her waist and replies, What is it? I want you to go down to the kitchen and have a cook make up a meal for two. Then I want you to take it out to the stable. The stable? Don't give me no guff. There's a family staying out there tonight. I, I don't know. Something about them kind of gripped my heart. They don't have any place to go and... Yeah, I know. That's like a, a lot like the others, but there's something special about these two. Now, just go as you're doing, as you're told. Do you need this job or don't you? A slight disheveled, seen-better-years cook bends over his work and grumbles. Bah, humbug. There's a big taxation celebration down at the town square tonight, and I can't go because I'm stuck here working in the kitchen for a bunch of demanding ingrates. Some the, someday I'm going to get out of this hotel food service and start my own restaurant. That's what I'll do. Something with my future. I don't know how the manager expects me to feed all these people he's booked in this place. And the complaints? Room 212 didn't like the lamb chops. Too spicy, huh? Well, wait till they get a load of the lamb stew I'm going to make for them tomorrow. And now the boss tells me he wants room service delivery to the stable? Next thing you know, he'll have me cracking open the grain for the chickens and pigeons. Candlelight dinner for two in the stable, huh? Well, let's start with some of my chicken herb soup and some bread and gravy and a plate of fresh veggies and some dried figs. That ought to do it. Oh, I better send out a jug of milk. Abby says the girl's expecting a baby. How about some dessert? Some of my honey cakes. Nah, I've done more than my share already. Oh, oh, why not? It can't be spending much. It can't be fun spending a night in a stable like this. About as much fun as spending it in the kitchen. Abby, do this. Abby, do that. I've put in quite enough overtime this week. Thank you very much. It sure would have been nice to sleep in this morning, but the boss had got me running my fool legs off. 
It ain't my job to be clean in the stable. Well, a job's a job. I got to keep the boss happy if I'm going to get that little red chariot I've got my eye on. I should have brought a lantern. I forgot how dark it is out here, even in the daylight. Well, my eyes will adjust sooner or later. Move over, you big ox. I've got some fresh straw for you. Hey, Daisy, aren't you hungry, girl? Your manger is still full of... Oh, my! Where did that guy come from, little guy? Oh, sir, ma'am, cute baby. Please, pleased to meet you and your little son. What's his name? Jesus? I like that. It has a nice ring to it. You want me to get some more straw to make a better bed for your wife, mister? Maybe I can hunt up a cradle for the little tyke. Oh, it wouldn't be no trouble. Do you mind if I hold the baby? I'm pretty good with kids, though I ain't got none of my own. Oh, wonder how, what these hands will do when they all grow up, little boy. Sounds like he's getting hungry. Here you go, ma'am. Guess that's your department. You've got a fine son there. Believe you me, I know babies, and there's something special about this one. Others have done it before. They've taken the Advent story that happened close to 2,000 years ago and rephrased it in modern language. This version is heavily laced with fiction, but purposely human. If Christ's coming as a babe in the manger has taken place in the 21st century, instead of in the first century, the inn in Bethlehem very well might have had a neon, no vacancy sign. And the way that baby's coming affected all those around him that might as well have been similar to the reactions of our fictional innkeeper and cook and servant. The point of the story's retelling is to underscore the fact that the birth of Jesus is not only historical significance, but personal revelation and daily application. You're listening to a special Christmas edition of I Work For Him with stories to inspire you to great faith and remind you why we celebrate Christmas. Martha, you're about ready to start the story, Not So Silent Night, by Cynthia Rukti. As Becky drew the nursery blinds closed against the troubled darkness, she silently expressed renewed gratitude that her husband had insisted on their purchasing the highest quality thermal pane windows and the most highly rated insulation and siding they could afford when building their home. The violence of the night's howling wind and the swirling snowstorm was kept outside, far removed from the warmth and quiet of the protected room in which she stood with her newborn over her shoulder and her toddler underfoot. Is he asleep yet? Four-year-old Timmy asked a little too loudly and a little too impatiently. Almost, Timmy. I think his tummy ache is almost gone. Should we rock him for a little bit? If we have to, then can you tell me a story? I can tell you a story right now if you like. Mamas can rock and tell stories at the same time? Well, sure we can. That's one of the things that will make having a baby in the house so much fun. You and I will have lots of time to talk and share stories when Mommy is rocking little Jonathan, or feeding him, or giving him a bath. He can't even take his own bath? That baby isn't too smart, is he, Mama? Oh, he's very smart, Timmy. He's just new. He has a lot to learn, and I hope you will help me and your daddy teach him some good things as he grows up. Will he ever be as big as me? Well, sooner than we know, my son. We'll need more toys! I suppose we will, dear. But when Jonathan is as big as you are now, you'll be eight years old. Wow, then I can drive him to the park so we can play. (laughs) Well, we'll see about that. For now, let's just concentrate on taking good care of this little baby and helping him grow strong and healthy. He sure smells good. Why, yes, he does. Be careful when you touch Jonathan's head, dearie. You have to be gentle, okay? Smells like a baby. Mm Mm-hmm. Not like yesterday. He smells... 
smells pretty bad yesterday. Timmy. Well, he did. Dirty diapers are just part of having a baby in the house, honey. I don't like that part. You know what? I don't either. Now let's choose an idea for a story, shall we? I heard a story in Sunday school. Well, what was it about? Jesus. Well, that's good. What about Jesus? He was a baby once, you know. Yes, I know. I don't think baby Jesus ever smelled like, you know, not very good. Timothy Joseph Walters. What? Oh, honey, it's not polite to talk about Jesus that way. Why not? He was a regular baby, wasn't he? In some ways, yes. Didn't you just say that all babies make stinky diapers? They can't help it? But he is also God's son. We have to speak about him with great respect. What's respect? Well... Never hmm. mind. I know a song about Jesus when Jesus was born. You do? Want me to sing it? Can you sing it quietly? We don't want to startle the baby. It's a quiet song, Mom. Good. Away in the manger, no crib for a bed. Well, that's a nice song, Timmy. Go on. Do you know the rest of the words? I don't know the words I just sung. What's a manger? <laughs> a manger is a place where farmers put the food for the cows and the horses. Jesus laid in a food bucket? Actually, it was more like um, a trough, a long trough thing, like a wagon without the wheels, only taller, of course, so the animals could reach it. Wasn't his mom afraid the animals would eat him? Oh, honey, it wasn't like that. Oh, was it like this? You mean like Jonathan's nursery? Yeah. No, it wasn't at all like this. We're warm and protected and safe here. It's quiet and clean and a nice place for a new baby to live, don't you think? Uh-huh. But Jesus was born in a very different place, a stable like a barn. What was his mother thinking? Oh, that wasn't her choice, honey. No, I'm sure she would have rather been at home with her family around her, people helping her with nice clean sheets and clean warm blankets to wrap up the new baby boy. I'm sure she would have liked to have a rocking chair like this to comfort Jesus if he got a tummy ache. I'm sure she would have rather had nice soft carpeting underfoot instead of that bad smelling straw in the drafty noisy stable. It was noisy in there? Don't you imagine it was, Timmy? What does Grandpa Frank's barn sound like when you f help him feed the calves or watch him at milking time? It's noisy, all right. Now imagine a barn like Grandpa Frank's, only with horses and camels and sheep and goats, maybe a chicken or two beside the bellering cows. What's bellering? <laughs> and then the baby's born and everything gets quiet, right? What makes you think that? Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Oh, Timmy, that's a different story. <laughs> Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Mm, I wonder if it was. Was what? I know that night was holy, but I wonder if it was silent. Listener, have you wondered that too? What that incredible Christmas night was really like? Did the animals in the stable instantly hush their noise-making in the presence of the Creator, King, Child? Were th that mothering's laboring groans muffled by cows calling out their distress at the intrusion? Was the child's first cry lost in the flurry of animal sounds? Were the creatures oblivious to the presence of two humans and a divine baby? Or 
as tradition tells, were the innately miraculously awed and silenced by the wonder of God come to earth in their humble surroundings. The stable setting was no accident. Oh, it was probably the furthest thing for Mary and Joseph's minds that Mary should go into labor while away from home, much less without even the least of comforts and provisions for the birth of their child. It was not a pretty picture, not the quaint, charming scene we might imagine. We can assume that the stable was not clean or pleasant. It was undoubtedly drafty, unkept, foul-smelling, and crowded. There's no mention that the manger was new, not yet, not yet used. As crude as it may sound, the truth of the matter is that it was probably dried animal slobber all over the Christ child's first bed. Pastor and author Dan Schaefer conjectures that Christ's humble beginnings on earth, the stable, the manger, an inexperienced mother and a nervous father were divinely purposeful to announce in the most dramatic way possible that God had come to be available, not isolated, reachable to the most common of humans. The author writes, God humbled himself before me so I would realize there was nothing God wouldn't do to bring me back into relationship with him. In other words, there were no sacrifices he was unwilling to make in order to win us to himself. In this one act, writes Mr. Schaefer, he answered some of my greatest questions. When I'm tempted to blurt, Lord, you don't know what it's like to be humiliated like this, he points to the manger. When I cry out, Lord, I don't, I deserve better than this, he silently points me to the manger. And the eloquent scene reminds me that he suffered this indignity and more. When I tell God, you see all these injustices in my life and you could change them, you have the power, he agrees, but reminds me of the manger. As Mr. Schaefer's words express, no humiliation, injustice, or undeserved unpleasantness we bear compares with the utter indignity of the king being born in a stable, not a palace, laid in a used manger, not a silk pillow-lined cradle, with no, no baby oil or perfume lotion, but cow and sheep manure and animal sweat scenting the first earth air he breathed, not sweet, digitally mixed lullabies, but moos and bleats and cackles and snorts. The only silence would have had to have been supernaturally imposed by heaven. Infinite Lord, my infant king, throned in humility, your only robes, your swaddling clothes, crying your first decree, your grand domain, your crown and train, darkness and ox and sheep. Jesus in dust and hay I kneel, stabled in deepest need. My only robes, your righteousness, mercy my only plea. My light, your gaze, my song, your praise, my hope and prayer, your peace. Being born in a smelly, drafty, crude and humble, not at all charming stable was just the first of many indignities Jesus would suffer for our sakes, culminating with his cruel and undeserved death on the cross. In fact, when you think about his entire earth life, what comforts did he know? He didn't have a pillow to call his own even 33 years after his stable birth. Countless times he was called to rely on the miraculous to provide his next meal. When he left this earth, there was no lengthy legal proceeding for the dispersal of his lands and possessions. He owned none. Why is it important for us to ponder these truths in a luxury gluttoned, consumer fixated, possession warped season like this? So that we might choose the humble celebrations, the humble traditions, the simple pleasures, when remembering this most stark and simple yet glorious of births. And so we might take to heart the unsurpassed comfort of the truth that God chose to close his uncommon son in Commons. commonies. 
so that we would know that he is accessible to the common man or woman. He didn't station he didn't station royal guards between us and his son. He laid him right there amongst the most humble of us, symbolically extending a restriction-free invitation to us to come. Come and see where the young child is laid right here among us. We're going to finish up with the reading of Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 starting with verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of a Nazareth of a Nazarene to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph and the virgin's name Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. "Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you." She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that, but the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great. He be called son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will rule Jacob's house forever. No end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I have never slept with a man. The, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called Holy Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son, old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and here she is in her sixth month pregnant. Nothing you see is impossible with God. And Mary said, Yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me, just as you say. And then the angel left her. About that time, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire. This was the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone had to travel to his own ancestral hometown to be accounted for. So Joseph went from the Galilean town of Nazareth up to Bethlehem in Judea. David's town for the census. As a descendant of David, he had to go there. He went with Mary, his fiancée, who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to a son... Her firstborn wrapped him in a blanket and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the hostel. There were shepherds camping in the neighborhood. They had set watch, the night watches over their sheep. Suddenly God's angels stood among them and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everyone worldwide. A savior has just been born in Davidstown, a savior who is Messiah and master. This is what you're to look for, a baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. At once the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. As the angel choir withdrew into heaven, the shepherders talked it over. Let's go to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed to us. They left running, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Seeing was believing. They told everyone they met with the angels. They told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child. All who heard the shepherds were impressed. Mary kept all these things to herself, holding them dear, deep within herself. The shepherds returned to let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything they had seen and heard. It turned out exactly as they had been told. You're listening to a special Christmas edition of I Work For Him with stories of great faith, reminding you why we celebrate Christmas. Martha, that was a lot of fun. It was. And I love being able to put ourselves into what it really might have been like, even if it's just taking history and trying to mold around it. There was a fourth story that you wanted to read, which was really 
all about the perspective of Mary's perspective. Yeah. It was talking about the sacrifice that Mary made. And I think one of the things, number one, as we were reading through different stories that uh, Cynthia Rupti has written and shared with us, it was really predominant how God prepared Mary and Joseph for this life that he gave them. This was not something that he decided at the last minute. As humans, they were prepared. And so the story was about Mary's sacrifice and waking up that, well, in the story, she never even fell asleep that night after the angel visited her. I can't imagine how you would fall asleep. But it's just that whole um, scenario of her coming into the kitchen and having the conversation with her mom. That morning. And, <laughs> That'd been an easy conversation um, to have, I'm sure. No, really, it would have been a very difficult one to have. Yet, um, in the story, the way it's written, uh, there's a confidence that Mary has only because she knows she's being obedient. She knows the truth, and there's nothing to be ashamed of, although it can be very misconstrued by society. And that's where her mom was so shocked. You can only imagine because. They were never even allowed to be alone together in that time of culture when they were betrothed. What do you want to do with the rest of the day? Uh, Enjoy time with family. That's what it's all about. And that's what we want to encourage you to do, listeners. As we come to the end of this special Christmas edition of I Work For Him, we're just grateful to have celebrated it with you. Just take the rest of the day and enjoy time with each other. And don't just watch football and eat food. Talk with each other and eat Mm -hmm. food. But make sure you eat food, of course. But recognize the fact that as we've talked about it all year long, you are in your mission field today. You're being home with family. You may be surrounded by people who maybe don't know Christ. Have you stopped and just said, wow, instead of being caught up in all the glim and glamour glamour of uh, Christmas, how can I minister to those people that I am? They're my family. What can we do to not just take the city, but take my family with me when I die? What is it that we can do to help take this city for Christ? You know, we were reminded today that we wouldn't have any hope if not for Jesus. We're reminded today that the story of Christ coming to this earth was a sacrifice for our Heavenly Father, a huge sacrifice for our Heavenly Father and for Christ to be willing to separate themselves, be willing to take the form of a human and know when he came down here that he was going to be humbled to the point of being a baby and knowing that he had 33 years later a mission to accomplish and to die on the cross for us. But the good news is there's good news and that mission was accomplished and he died for you and me and he rose from the dead on Easter because Easter would have no meaning if Christ wasn't who he was, born a God-man. As you celebrate Christmas with your family, remember, every question they're asking, Jesus is the answer. You've been listening to the special edition of I Work For Him with your hosts, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers and we own our own business, but ultimately, I I work work for him. him.